0: The sun shines while I sit outside crying Trying my best to completely stop time I wish I knew when to start talking I wish I knew how to shut up I wish I could just sit in a corner and finally give up
1: Hello and welcome back to The Grey Album Podcast and today we'll be looking at two films. uh, The Ghostwriter or The Ghost uh, from 2010 and Love Actually from 2003. The Christmas special guys! So the
0: plan for this episode was we're going to do a Christmas special. Love Actually is probably the ultimate Christmas movie, definitely the ultimate British Christmas movie. It has everybody in it, it's iconic, people still watch it 20 years later at Christmas um, I had never seen it. Yeah, Peter had never seen it. It's also the the twenty year anniversary this year, so that had to be one of one of the movies. Um, and obviously, who's the main character in Love Actually? It's Tony Blair. So we were going to use that that movie as a springboard to discuss Blair Blairism, the Blair years, our childhood during the the Blair years, which is like the the the, the British Zoomer childhood. Is yeah, the Blair Cool years.
1: Britannia. Really. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Britpop. Um so yeah, and uh, I I I I yeah, thought uh, kind of the, the Ghostwriter which uh, which I had seen recently, uh the Roman Polanski thriller about this kind of Tony Blair like character was a good another good cinematic representation of Blair, even though they claim claim it's not Blair, but we we all know. So, uh Going with our kind of unusual pairings That we have on the podcast Love Actually and The Ghostwriter I don't think any other podcasters Talked about those two films In in quite the same episode So Especially with a Christmas theme Merry Christmas everybody Merry Christmas Uh, Hopefully this will come out in time And you can kind of listen to it As you're opening your presents Or basting your turkey or whatever it is you do on <laughs> during your christmas holidays right so sh- should i just launch straight into it with with the ghostwriter so the ghostwriter from 2010 also known as the ghost apparently the americans needed the word writer on there uh, to, to make it very clear what the film was about a bit like you know, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, because the word philosopher is seemingly unknown in the U.S. But uh, based on the novel by uh, Robert Harris follows Ewan McGregor, who's been hired to write the memoirs of the controversial uh, former British Prime Minister Adam Lang, played by uh, Piers Brosnan. It's this kind of thriller where uh, Ewan McGregor uncovers dark secrets about what's really going on uh, with, with the former Prime Minister what were your thoughts on the ghostwriter in general abraham
0: um i thought it was actually pretty good um it's clearly been done on a fairly low budget um i thought the strength of it was the pacing because it's, it's a thriller movie like the stakes are slowly raised each scene builds on the next by the time you get to the end i, I wasn't entirely happy with with the ending but it, it felt like,
1: you can feel the, the climax building i think that's the strength of this movie yeah interesting uh, so like the yeah, why don't we just talk about the ending? I, because that is that's the thing. Like that sold me on the movie. Not not so much like what the twist is, or or kind of what 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 secrets revealed. But I I just really loved the way the ending was done from kind of a kind of a construction like formal point of view, where there's that amazing scene uh, where the Hugh Mcgregor character writes something down on a note. And the camera follows as as it's like passed from person to person, and then at the end, uh, spoilers that the car hits him and all the all the papers go flying, and it's it, it's kind of like a typical thriller ending in that you don't really want to think through the implications too much, but when you're watching the film, it it, it definitely works for you. Um. So what
0: particularly bothered me about the ending? Was so there's several plot twists throughout the movie. As again, as again, as I said about the pacing, each plot twist is like greater than the next, and the, but they all seem realistic. That's what I liked about it. Each plot plot twist was plausible. Each one built the hype, and the last plot twist was that the the secret is revealed by using the first word of each chapter in the book, and that I just felt was just a bit silly. Like <laughs> there was all this talk about beginnings, like the the clue is in the beginnings, and that was initially interpreted as the beginning of the book, as in the subject matter of the beginning of the book, which was Adam Lang, i.e. Tony Blair's uh, youth in, in Cambridge and in his early years in politics. And that really made sense. But then when the plot twist was, oh, beginnings actually meant the beginning of each chapter as in the individual word, and that was where the secret was contained, that felt unrealistic. It made the, the, the original ghostwriter, the one who died, who had been doing this orig- original investigation, it kind of cheapened him, made him a less serious character. Um, and so I wasn't too pleased with that uh, I like the plot twist that his wife was actually the the CIA asset rather than Tony Blair I really like that I, I mean obviously the, the whole movie, excuse me, a based anti-neocon movie from 2010 uh, respect <laughs> I lo- anti-military industrial complex, anti-CIA
1: anti-Blair uh, uh, foreign policy, okay great movie There are so many of those there's like a whole sub-genre between like 2005 to like 2015 where it's like anti, anti neocon kind of uh, movies that like the big thing is like national security isn't actually making anyone safer. That's kind of the message of all of these these films. And then they they've suddenly like disappeared. Have you seen the Will Smith uh, NSA movie from nineteen ninety eight? Is it The Enemy of the State or
0: something? Yes, that I haven't seen it. Like... But... Oh, you haven't seen it? Okay, that movie. If you watch it, it feels a hundred percent like it was made in like 2013. Like it was like a Snowden movie. But the, the subject matter, the analysis of the, of the of the of the deep state, the analysis of the national security state, the themes, everything about it, it feels like it was made it was made 12 years 12 years too early. Like, really weird. The only the only time when you feel the movie is is outdated is when you see like the the big fat monitors they use on their computers. But everything else is a hundred percent like. That kind of post bush uh, reaction to the national security state uh, uh, in film, and so yeah. that's, that's that's one of the reasons I, I always enjoy watching that movie is just to to see how how prescient it was. It was a p- literal pre 9 11 movie. The script is probably written in oh, the mid nineties. There, there's
1: another there's a there's a trilogy of uh, like BBC spy films starring uh, Bill Nye who, who's going to show up in in Love Actually. But it has it has like a very, very similar plot. The prime minister is like a mix of David Cameron and Tony Blair. It's like, oh, he's Tony Blair, but he's posh, uh, and like a uh, toff, and and the whole thing is like, oh, there are CIA black sites and so on. The it's like three films. The first one's called uh, Page H. And it's kind of a a trilogy. It was shown on the BBC. Very underrated, kind of the classic like British spy film where there are no guns and it's just like people passing files to each other. But again, very very similar message on the whole. And like, oh, the prime minister's supporting torture. We need to kind of uh, whistle blow on this, and and, and so on. Uh, yeah. So you like the twist with the Cherie Blair. Uh, analog being being the CIA asset.
0: Yeah, I li- I like that just in terms of the movie rather than any kind of r- realistic commentary. Um, especially and it all fit, fit fit together because at the beginning, you know, you learn that she was a brilliant brilliant in terms of political maneuvering, but she was terrible in terms of the kind of public facing qualities that a politician needs. So she wasn't mm. a good speech uh, speech giver for example, and that comes up in smart ways throughout the movie. And so it was, just, it was just it was a twist that I, I like twists when everything is built up to them but you don't expect them. That's what I really like. And you're like, oh, that makes sense when it's not forced. When it's just it just happens. I always really appreciate that. That's one of the reasons I enjoy really good uh, detective movies, uh, as we talked about in the first episode of this of this podcast.
1: Um, yeah, and the, other... the the actress plays it very well. Uh, Olivia, yeah, she Olivia does. Olivia Williams. Yeah. I think I've seen her in things, but never, never really had the name.
0: Yeah, I actually looked her up after watching the movie, and she's not been in that. She's not been in many prominent roles. I was surprised because her her acting was pretty good. I think she's in Downton Abbey and a few other. She pops up here and there, but I don't think she's had that many uh, kind of supporting roles or, or main main roles.
1: Yeah, j- j- just just a, a, a weird thing I noticed. I thought the accents were all over the place. Like I, I, I not Yeah, I noticed tell. that too. Or like every single person, I think maybe apart from Olivia Williams, had a weird accent. Because like you McGregor, it's Scottish, but he's not doing Scottish. He's doing like generic kind of English. But the Piers yeah, the Piers Brosnan accent is strange. The his his like secretary has like a really weird accent. It's like it's like kind of like mid-atlantic but not really and then the the harvard professor as well has like a weird it's like an american accent but no no one really speaks like that it's
0: uh it's kind of like an old 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 american aristocracy accent yeah but 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 I, i think i think
1: you do find these types in kind of ivy league
0: uh circles
1: yeah and there th- there is a thing with like british accent uh, british actors when they when they have an american accent they tend to go for like a very kind of flat generic one like the yeah. the benedict cumberbatch american accent isn't actually very good when you hear it you, and you kind of you get used to it but like it, i've never heard any american actually speak like that uh well, what's the guy in the wire dominic somebody Oh, uh, I was gonna say Dominic Grieve, but that—that's someone else. Uh, Dominic West. Yeah, that's right. His American
0: accent, especially in the first season, is absolutely terrible. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I, that's one thing I, I've never understood. Let's let's start to change change topic for a bit. But one of the things I've never understood is why Hollywood hires so many British actors to play American roles. Like it, it's 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 saturated, and I thought I thought about this so much. Um. The only and it's not just oh they hire famous British actors because they're good and they're seasoned and they know what they're doing and they want to hire some professional they hire fresh you know fresh out out of acting school they, 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 lots of like lots of British actors make their debut in Hollywood um, yeah and the only reason that I could come up with over thinking about this for a very long time is that in the UK there's a big um, there are established institutes of um, acting so like if you go if you're like a middle class person you go to a private school there's a high chance that you're also in, in, in like an acting an acting club Lambda Lambda is one Ly- Lyceum is one um, there are all these there, there's, there's like there's like a, a very established institutional structure um, that, that takes like young smart kids and makes turns them into actors they do lots of Shakespeare they do lots of contemporary plays they do lots of musical theatre um, and so by the time they reach eight, eight, 18 or so they've got a lot of exper- experience as, as stage actors and maybe that infrastructure. Infrastructure was a word I was thinking of. And maybe that infrastructure doesn't exist in the United States.
1: Yeah, well, it, it's the idea that like they go and study English literature at Cambridge, and in their spare time.
0: No, but but even but even for teenagers, like even for teenagers, I think there's there's a lot of a lot of acting infrastructure that that maybe doesn't exist. Also, because Britain's much smaller, so if you're in any kind of big city. Um, they'll have that, whereas America. So, like, if you're in the Midwest, I don't know what kind of uh, how many how many high school students are, are are doing Shakespeare, you know, twice a week or something.
1: Yeah, and I I think it like <clears> that. You often get kind of articles in the Guardian talking about the class divide in acting in, in Britain, but uh, I I think of like Mulholland Drive, where you you have the the woman from the from the midwest like come to la to try and make it because she basically she's pretty and and she can uh you know she has no formal acting skills but then uh for some people it works out whereas in britain it's like oh you do a course and then then you do it at university and then you're in a play and then uh so on and so on that's kind of more of an you're more well trained and there's more of a like a clear arc to your career i think than than in america yeah
0: i think both the the very developed youth theater scene um for middle class kids in this country um and there's also a lot of respected theater institutions you know there's all these um royal conservatoires and there's lyceum and Lambdas as you mentioned um, I think that basically creates like a, a fairly established pipeline for a young person with no connections to Hollywood no connections to the industry to go through and to come up the other end as an actor so you know they're in their they're in their private schools theater group they do an extra um, th- theater lessons musical theater acting um, then they go as you said they go on to university and they're in the acting groups there they study literature or something related and it's just it's all primed uh, so that at the end they just they come out and they're like someone, as you said, with a lot more experience than, than an American who may need to have either have a lot of money to achieve something like that or to have connections. Um, I think I think it might it might also be cheaper for Hollywood. They just get, you get these qualified people from the UK who seem to be pretty competent. There's a lot of them. There's there's already an infrastructure up, set up for, for them to be able to, to, to be moved into Hollywood fairly quickly, to be recruited fairly quickly. Uh, and it might also be cheaper in terms of wages and a bunch of other things. Um, and try and not not needing so much training, so it might, it might just yeah. be, be that. But I still think it's it's it's, it's weird how overrepresented Brits are in, in Hollywood. It might also be that these young people also have because they've gone through this whole system, they'll have familiarity familiarity with things like acting coaches, shooting schedules, things like that. That the you know your fresh American who wants to go into Hollywood might not. So I think it's just a, just a case of hiring people with experience and professionalism who know what they're doing. Um,
1: the, the uk's great pool for that well it's it's that the we punch above our weight in soft power argument which is which is easy to mock uh but it's it's not entirely false if, if we're if if we're being honest i i think with the ghostwriter in particular it was more so it's roman polanski but obviously for for a wide variety of reasons, he can't actually shoot it in Martha's Vineyard in the U.S. So it's all shot in, uh I think, like German kind of North Sea islands and like Danish North Sea islands, and the, the scenes in London and New York, I think, are in Berlin, uh w- which looks fine in the movie. You can't you can't really tell, but. Uh, it looks, like, it looks like Maine. It looks like Maine in February, or Maine yeah, in Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, I, I, so, it was basically, it's not like a Hollywood film. It was a European production, and a lot, of, a, a, one of the, one of the guys that criticized it, who I think worked, worked for Tony Blair as an advisor at some point, like, he, he, he critiqued the fact that, I think, the German government, like funded it for two million euros or something partially partially funded the film so uh that that might explain like the the preponderance of of, of british actors versus yeah i, versus I noticed Americans. even some of
0: the, the the very minor actors just playing roles as uh you know barmen or waiters or whatever they also had kind of the, the american accents were a bit unclear
1: Let, let's talk about kind of some of the portrayal of Blair and the like, the Robin Cook foreign secretary character in 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 the film, and then we can use that to, to transition to to Love Actually. But like, what 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 is the film saying about Blair? That like he's shallow and doesn't actually know anything about politics. Yeah,
0: I think that's that's that that's the conclusion you get from the movie. Is that Blair is basically like a people person, someone who's good at being charismatic and connecting with voters, whatever, but to ultimately, when it comes to policy, when it comes to what's important, when it comes to decision-making, there's people behind the scenes uh, who are the ones in charge. I think that's sort of like the Peter Hitchens take on Blair, that he was... He, Peter Hitchens has this quote about, you know, he wanted to be Mick Jagger, uh, but he, he settled for being prime minister. For So for, for, for Hitchens, it's all about Blair's... Uh, Blair, Blair isn't the one who's making the, the, you know, the hardcore policy decisions during the Blair years. He he credits people like Alistair Campbell and, and uh, Peter Mandelson as being the ones really in charge. And maybe there's some truth to that, especially in the first Blair ministry from yeah. 97 to 2001. Uh, because I think that was the most radical, in terms of domestic policy, that was the most radical Blair ministry. It was most left-wing one. Um, it's also the one that Blair seems to have the most regrets about, like I think he
1: he feels he was immature
0: during those years
1: but it it, it it's like the it's the constitutional stuff and so on cuz on economics he was basically I think he kept the Tory spending plans for a few years where whereas in like 2001 to 2005 they they like okay. turned the tabs okay. on a bit more
0: what I was thinking of was in terms of things like immigration and also tough on crime um, like there was more like right-wing rhetoric right-wing aesthetics in the the second two Blair ministries. Of course partly that was that was you know post 9/11 foreign policy stuff but it was also you know uh, tough on crime tough on illegal immigration I mean, Blair was Blair deported more people than than, than people realize like there was mass deportations under Blair. Um, there was a, a huge campaign against crime against uh, against uh, youth, what did they call asbo what what was that it was anti so anti-social behavioral order where they would mark these like chavs and these like uh, out of control youths with an asbo like only only people of a certain age can remember the asbo um
1: yeah (laughs) well and the whole like id card thing where like he wanted that was his only failure that was the thing he couldn't get through (laughs) yeah yeah He, he never got the id cards through well, it reminds me I was looking longingly at the list of home secretaries under Blair. And it's like all of these people are more <laughs> bigger immigration restrictionists than uh than what we call it. like Jack Straw, David Blunkett, Charles Clark, John Reed. They're basically they're all all like old white guys who kind of just want to lock people up a bit more. Uh <laughs> Which is not again, the kind of not not the view of the the Labour government that that most people have. Famously, Blanqui wanted to shoot the rioters
0: with with machine guns. Do you remember that?
1: Wait, with machine guns? Yeah, he wanted to that. machine
0: <laughs> use machine guns on the rioters. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's like. But Boris Johnson wanted to use the water cannons. <laughs> yeah. And for that he's like a massive yeah. authoritarian. And people don't realise that the Conservative
0: Party was also was taking the opposite, was taking the the, the, the counterline on that. David Cameron was wanted to hug a hoodie. Remember
1: that? Yeah, and David Davis, like all for civil liberties and so on. So it was it was kind of a weird weird time. The tough on crime policies were actually reversed in in 2010, eleven
0: when Blair when Cameron came in. Um because basically it was kind of libertarian arguments about civil liberties and stuff.
1: Yeah, well, and it, it was one of the one of the things both coalition mm-hmm. partners yeah. agreed yeah. on. Uh was, was kind of, yes, yeah, so civil liberties. I actually I, I have an anecdote. It's, it's not that interesting, but uh, when I was like a 12 year old or like a 14 year old politics nerd, I went I went to a Jack Straw book signing for his memoir which i think came out in like 2010 2011 probably but uh yeah he he was like one of the one of the respected labor politicians in my family wherever it was like kind of oh jack straw he's a he's a solid guy uh and i asked him a question which he he very graciously answered so you know only good things to say about him Though he he did resign in disgrace, if I remember correctly. But they all they all end up doing that. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned
0: who were the respected uh, New Labour people in your in your in your family, because you know me being from Scotland, it was always like the the the, the Brown faction were considered <laughs> like the the good honest people, and the Blair faction were considered you know the slimy lying politicians who screwed over Gordon Brown and. The only reason Brown supported the Iraq Wars because he was lied to by the CIA, it's, it's not his fault. He was the he was the honest one, and all this total rubbish. Um, but I mean, uh, the, the, the sort of the the, the infighting between between the, the the Blairites and the Brownites is actually super interesting, especially all the all these years later, because Blair was basically undefeatable in terms of dealing with the opposition. Dealing with elections and that kind of thing, he he was the master politician. Him and his team, they were the master politicians. But yet somehow the the, the theory cell brownite faction, who were always more interested in you know uh, technocracy and, and managing things than they were in, in in you know politics or political campaigning, they somehow managed to to force them out in the end. And okay, it took them ten years, but it still I still don't fully know what the politics were. The, the you know, Brown and Alistair Campbell managed to... Sorry, Alistair Darling, uh, excuse me, managed to force out Blair and, and his team in, in 2007. I I, I haven't fully, fully understood what happened there.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, and it's, like, Ed Balls and Douglas Alexander and kind of these people, like, you kind of look at them and they're all these, like, nerds that you don't like. And all the people around Blair are, like, super cool... Uh, like hip or or kind of the 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 kind of Jack Straw types who, who could easily be a Tory, but like uh, aren't where? Whereas where is the the Brownites, I just imagine them like skewing in anger in Edinburgh.
0: <laughs> and then there's like the 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 Ed Miliband versus David Miliband uh split. So David Miliband is like the the Blairite, and Ed Miliband is the Brownite. And then what was which election was it? it must have been the two thousand. 20, well, I can't remember, one of the elections... Was, I think, might, yeah, might be the 2010 election, when when David Miliband lost, and Ed Miliband didn't, and so he became leader, and, and David Miliband was, was... And all the Blairites were fuming. another Brownite victory. How
1: can we take another Brownite victory? <laughs> 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 yeah. Do you have any idea of... Because the Brownites were Scottish... But also the Blairites were Scottish, because like Blair, w- was he born in Scotland or did he just go to university there or like he's he is Scottish? Yeah,
0: he went to Fettes, which is like the most the most elite private school in Edinburgh. And I, I knew a guy whose brother went there. He, he there's this like the only old money family I know. But all, all the others went to my school, but the, the older brother went to
1: Fetty's. Um, what was I saying? Yes, yeah, so Blair was born in Edinburgh. And then Alistair Campbell was Scottish as well. So I, I don't know how... Uh, John Smith, who, who was before, before Blair, was also Scottish. I don't know how the Scots took over so, so effectively.
0: Yeah, I actually... I actually I'm not going to go into the specifics, but I, I knew someone very well who was Gordon Brown's right-hand man uh, when Gordon Brown was running the Edinburgh Student Union and according to this is someone I really uh, respect and, and trust and they told me like Gordon Brown is like 500 IQ like you'll have you have a, a debate with him and he'll just know every single point just like off the top of his head he said the example he gave was like when you have you know when you have a discussion with someone or an argument with someone and then five hours later you think oh I should have said that yeah Gordon Brown is the guy who just says that all the time I one hundred percent believe that. Yeah, I definitely believe that. And he was the one with like the PhD, you know, in economic or whatever, economics or philosophy or whatever it was. He is like he is like the, the brains. But the problem was, as I said, he's a theory cell. So when it came to actually getting anything done, or it came to, you know, winning the twenty ten election, I think Blair probably could have just about won the twenty ten election. Whereas, because I mean, it was, it was, a uh, ended up having to be a coalition because the conservatives couldn't win by that, that didn't win by that big, a a margin. So I think if Blair was still there, the the Labour Party probably could have just pulled it off. But it was Gordon Brown, um, just wasn't a good political communicator. There was that whole incident with, uh, with that supposedly racist lady and the hot mic. Gillian Duffy.
1: (laughs) But also with, uh the brown thing was he he was unable to kind of make decisions that was like the like as he he was criticized for not uh for not calling the election in 2007 and for being indecisive and then kind of micromanaging things a bit too much while losing losing sight of the big picture which in contrast blair was definitely like a big big picture person Right, do we do we want to move on to Love Actually? Okay, yeah.
0: Well, speaking of uh, Blair being uh, the cool, suave one, um, our next movie is Love Actually, which is the ultimate Blair propaganda movie, basically aimed at, aimed at like young to middle aged <laughs> women to get them to vote for Blair. Um, <laughs> key to the movie is there's no Sherry Blair in this movie. Um, I've heard, I, I don't have any kind of memory of this But I've heard that she wasn't particularly popular And women especially didn't like Cherry Blair um, I don't know if you have anything to say about that
1: Yeah, well I was kind of confused by her Portrayal in, in the Ghostwriter Because what, what, Was she seen As like the Machiavellian uh, the, I don't think she was, I think people just things. didn't like I, her. I just thought people yeah. didn't Yeah, didn't like her, yeah she was a lawyer, right? She I I I think she was like quite a well like high high ranking lawyer or something. But yeah, people didn't like her. There's also in in love actually just just to fi- finally bring it to, back to Blair Brown. Uh there is that weird like Gordon Brown character. Who's like always sits next to Hugh Grant at the cabinet yeah. meetings and looks really happy when he when when he like is mean to the U.S. president, but <laughs> I am not sure how deliberate that was because it was it was like just a guy with brown hair, but I, I, I think it was kind of going for the Gordon Brown vibe in in contrast to to Hugh Grant.
0: Well, I've only got uh, two words to say. Dancing tone. That scene in that movie is perfection.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm. I had never seen Love Actually, and I I don't know why. I think it was because my mum liked it so much. I imagine your mum likes Love Actually. Yeah, yeah, I imagine every Zoomer mother loves <laughs> lo- loves Love Actually. Uh, Z- Zoomer's mother, no Zoomer mother. Yeah that that's well it does have cross-generational appeal as it's true as, as yeah as we're yeah. saying but uh yeah I had never seen it because it was kind of a thing that she always insisted on watching like not every year because our 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 yearly christmas movie is probably home alone but uh you know she she, she was a big richard curtis uh fan so I, I I just never bothered to watch it, and now now you finally made me do it, and I have to say it is. It's a very it's like a deeply strange film that works. It works on so many levels, but then it kind of doesn't work for me on so many other levels. But I think I do have to say I, I like it despite its flaws. Like you definitely see why it's become the kind of classic it has
0: yeah and I think I think the I think it's it, one of the reasons it's become the classic is that all the actors in it some of them were very famous at the time so there was this like kind of all-star cast aspect uh, at the time but also a lot of them were kind of young actors that have now become like iconic actors especially in the UK um, I mean Kira Knightley was only 18 when this movie was shot and you know okay I'm oh, I'll really? just put okay. the cards on the table I'm a massive Keira Knightley simp um but still i think it's a good example of like someone who was like okay was maybe their third or something movie and now they're like an icon
1: yeah she she was one of like she was one of the first like you, you know when you watch films as a child and you don't realize that like acting is a job mm-hmm. and like that that like these people are it, like you know it's not real but like at least for me, I never put together like, oh, it's like the same actor in two different movies. Sure, something. sure. She was she was she was like one of the first uh, a- actors and actresses that I-, I realized like, oh, that that's like a person, <laughs> and like she's Kira Knightley in Pirates of the Caribbean. But uh yeah,
0: I, I actually never watched Pir- Pirates of the Caribbean. So my first introduction to Kira Knightley was. Wait, that's not Natalie Portman. <laughs> because not, it, 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 she really looked like like, like now I, I I can I can easily tell the difference. But when I didn't really know either of them too well, um, and especially because they were both in the the first Star Wars movie as the same character, um, like they really at the beginning I thought they really really looked alike, and it took me a while to actually be able to tell the difference.
1: Should we go through the cast? Yeah, okay, let's go through the cast. So you have... Do you want to give like a... Yeah, like what? What is the movie? I I imagine everyone kind of knows, but like, what what is it on a on a broad? It's Tony Blair being cool. That's that's all you need to know. It's Tony Blair being
0: cool. There's like <laughs> ten different plot lines with different different actors who are now all all famous. Some of them were famous back then. It's got Hugh Grant in it, Emma Thompson, Liam Neeson. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I was a fan of the Liam Neeson storyline. Like I get this, like the father son dynamic and everything, but I don't know. I don't know how how entertained I was by that. Maybe I'm. I'm just not the
1: right the right audience for that. The Liam Neeson storyline, I think, is, like, metatextual because Liam Neeson's wife died in a tragic accident or of cancer or something. Oh, I, I had no, no idea. But, oh, no, that was later. That was later. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I got the time. She died in 2009 in, like, a skiing accident. Okay, wow. Um, uh, I, I thought they were, like, making him play the guy with the dead wife. It's got Snape in it. Snape. The, my, one of my
0: favorite scenes was uh, Snape x uh, t- uh, Mister Bean. Yes, I thought that scene was so was so hilarious. Rowan, a- Rowan Atkinson is just so talented, and uh, him him
1: and, and Alan Rickman him and Snape
0: interacting was just was just amazing.
1: It, the, the Alan Rickman voice is is just kind of a fig of beauty. He has like one of the. F- when people say like oh this actor has a good voice it's usually they're really deep and kind of sonorous but he he just sounds like so languid and nasal but in in like a really yeah in like a really cool way yeah
0: yeah, and, and it's, it's the perfect like English gentleman who's just not impressed <laughs> like it's the perfect aesthetic of, 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 of that concept
1: like this, you know what? I, do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And also, like, wh- where does he work in the movie? It's like a charity or like some ad agency. Yeah, or something, something like that. Yeah. W- which seems so kind of yeah, Richard Curtis-y <laughs> 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 and like ve- yeah, very early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm making ads about like famines in <laughs> Africa uh, for for Christmas. Like, I I'm sure it was a thing in British culture before, and it's only probably because like I remember it. But the massive like Red Nose Day was made up by Richard Curtis basically, and the the whole kind of charity obsession in in the two thousands combined with kind of the the game show slash reality TV thing, I, I think that was like the massive thing in the culture.
0: Yeah. No, I I definitely remember that. Yeah. Well.
1: Um okay who else is in it um you have the walking dead guy who i thought who i i thought was american but turns out he's english colin Firth, of course martin freeman yes that uh, love actually has been has been the inspiration for so many like british political ads because you have you have Martin Freeman in twenty fifteen did the Labour uh, Labour Party political broadcast where it was him like rally you know ranting against the Tories basically but it was built on like Martin Freeman's star image as kind of the everyman in uh, well he was in The Hobbit but like Love Actually I think a lot of British people know him from Love yeah. Actually and Sherlock and then of course you have the Boris Johnson 2019 one with, uh, with with the the card saying you know get Brexit done and he's yeah. uh, he's not quite showing it to Kieran Knightley but uh, <laughs> it's the regular voter that he's he's courting there. Oh, and there's um, the guy the guy who goes to America that storyline. He he was like a he was on all the BT ads if I remember correctly. Wait, who? Chris Marshall, the kind of the, the blonde, the blonde guy in, in like 2008, I think he, I, I'm convinced he was, he was the face of, uh, of British telecoms, but, uh, yeah, very, very big cast. I was, I didn't know January Jones was in it I was so surprised I was like Oh my god It's January Jones uh, She's in it for like One scene But uh, Yeah Yeah still I always
0: got like A weird vibe A weird vibe from her In In in, uh, in Mad Men Like Obviously she's very beautiful But I just I just got this This weird like I don't know There was something off about her I found I think probably deliberately In In Mad Men There's just something Just off-booting Whereas in this I didn't get that vibe at all Again, it was only for one scene.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, 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 think it's one of those kind of like too good looking for their own good, mm, in a sense. Mm. Like you, you, like you, people. I think are naturally suspicious of, uh, of certain types of types of people like that. But uh, what what was your favorite love actually storyline? Sorry, I remember a few years ago there was
0: like a, there was like a headline went viral because a man was deported from Saudi Arabia for being too handsome. <laughs> Do you remember that? When it was like it was all over the place. No,
1: who was this. No, there was man? a
0: guy from the Emirates. He was working in Saudi Arabia, and they deported him for being too handsome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- th- well, there was uh, you know that actor Rob Lowe? Uh, he was on The West Wing and a few few other shows, like Amer- American TV actor. But he he a few years ago, he was like, "Oh, I yeah, I'm too good looking, and that's why they never cast me in roles." And people mocked him but i think there is something like true in that like um <clears throat> like like one of the main one of the most famous actors of recent years w- was uh philip seymour hoffman who who could kind of play play any role because he's he's not incredibly good looking Where, whereas you you do probably get typecast in, in in certain certain roles
0: yeah that brings me on to something um this is a conspiracy, a theory, a theory that uh, um, Natalie was uh, deliberately, ca- They deliberately cast a mid-actress to play Natalie um, so that all these, uh, you know, guardian reading women in their 30s would all subconsciously fall in love with Blair and read themselves into that character and then vote for Blair. What do you think about that?
1: Oh, so it's like relatable. So it's... Uh...
0: Yeah, it's like wish fulfillment. Like, oh, I'm the mid, the
1: mid, uh, you know, woman uh, who 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 suddenly Tony Blair falls in love with. Yeah, because like I, I did, I did read a piece recently about like Rich, Richard Curtis has gone woke and he's 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 apologized for all the fat jokes in Love Actually <laughs> um, uh like there's the, the the jokes about like I think it's her thighs or something. They're uh, they're there not not to like make fun of fat people, but it's it, it's kind of, it's kind of yeah to make it more relatable and, uh, f- for that element. But he he got interviewed somewhere by his like daughter who's like a feminist journalist, and she just like berated him on stage for 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 being a dinosaur. And he you know he he humiliated himself.
0: Long <laughs> well, that's hilarious.
1: You asked me earlier what my favourite scene was. Is that right?
0: Before I interrupted?
1: Yeah. Obviously, my favourite scene is Dancing Tone. <laughs> well, okay. Well, so, uh, you uh, like the Tony Blair romance storyline the most, then? I just like... Hugh Grant playing Blair is just hilarious. Because he's
0: obviously very charismatic. He has great facial expressions. And him as Tony Blair is just great. Um, obviously, my other favourite scene, as I said, with Mr Bean and uh, Alan Rickman. That was hilarious. Um, oh, I like the carol singing uh, thing. I wanted to mention something about that. You know when he goes, he he knocks on the door and there there the, are the kids there, and they ask him to carol sing, and he's like, "Oh well, yeah, yeah, carol. why not?" I, I when when the, the 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 bodyguard, the security guy, just starts singing like really well. I for some reason I burst out laughing at that at that moment. <laughs> I thought that was so hilarious.
1: And it's also Good King Wenceslas, which is like a Carol close to my heart. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I I can see why. (laughs) Good King (laughs) Vaslav. Yes, yes. Um, my favorite. I I I was actually surprisingly touched by the the Laura Linney and her mentally ill brother storyline. Oh, are you? That that was like the one. I I was frustrated by that thing. I was like. (laughs) oh really okay i don't know that was like the one kind of nice kind of christian-ish christmas message uh you know l- look after people and uh don't don't necessarily pursue the the the, the guy at work because he he might he not he might not be that nice after all but uh because because it is like my main issue with it was i feel there's like a there's an undercurrent of like cruelty in the film but then it's it it's like filled in with like schmaltz and you you have you have a lot of like the the romantic dramatic music run, running through it and so on and you have like a, a lot a lot of it has all, all the storylines basically have have happy endings and i kind of wished it was like a bit meaner and more realistic but obviously that's not uh that's not what people want with their Christmas movies, but like uh, more of like the Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman affair storyline, like one more kind of negative storyline I would have liked. Yeah.
0: I mean, talk about negative storyline. Andrew Lincoln's character, Mark, uh, his best friend marries this woman and then he's obsessed with the woman and and goes to her house with those cards. Like it's cheesy and romantic the way it's set up in the movie. But in real life, that's fucking weird.
1: Yeah, and it is kind of sad, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, it's it's pathetic. It's it's uh, he has no self respect. Um, Keira Knightley's character should not have found that in the, in any way endearing. She should have found him to be a total creep because of that. She should have immediately told her new her husband about it, and he should have beaten the piss out of him.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I'm she i'm sure she was flattered by by his attentions but you know uh yeah that that whole thing is is kind of it, every year there's a there's a spate of stories which is like is love actually secretly problematic <laughs> and then ever everyone kind of decides that it is but they watch it anyway because yeah. they like it just like how michael jackson cannot be canceled yeah. because he's like you just can't. He's too good, uh, re- regardless of like like the evidence against him. So so here, like that that storyline, it's probably right rightfully seen as a bit creepy, but it, it just it works. It's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's
0: not even it's not even cr- creepy. It's just it's just pathetic. And uh, I don't know. Like I, I get it. Like I get what they're trying to do there. I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying they shouldn't be in the movie. I'm not saying this is a flaw in the movie. I'm just saying in real life, this yeah. guy is a total loser. And uh, uh, the husband should have been the show out of him. Okay. And also he should have been more subtle subtle with the, with the camera as well. He should have gotten some extra shots in there to, to cover his tracks. Well,
1: I think it was just for his personal yeah. use, I imagine. Like, <laughs> uh, nice euphemism yeah, you, there. He didn't He didn't think he <laughs> would get you know found out so quickly. Like yeah, the Portuguese storyline that that feels very, very yeah. mid mid two thousands. Like <laughs> yeah, there aren't there aren't many like Portuguese waitresses or cleaners. Yeah. <laughs> well, she wasn't in England, but like that, I, that that's where mm-hmm. it came from. I I I I, I think. Uh, yeah, Portugal being 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 portrayed as like a th- sort of semi third world country. yeah i don't think well like the entire village is like (laughs) yeah
0: i mean to be fair Uh, that was what portugal was like until like 20 years ago so i don't think i don't think that we can
1: critique on that yeah that's true there are people who make all kinds of like excuses for the salazar regime but when you look at the literacy levels of portugal when he gets kicked out of office or he dies compared compared to the rest of europe there's like something clearly going on there that that's that's not entirely good. Uh, I, I was going to say I appreciated uh, the Joni Mitchell's shout out as someone who likes listening to okay. kind of sad female music. Uh, I, I will forever be angry at Joe Rogan for his vaccine skepticism because uh, poor, poor Joni Mitchell, polio survivor, was uh, forced to take her music off off, off Spotify to, to protest against Joe <laughs> Rogan. And now now I can't, now I can't listen to her. <laughs> so I thought Emma Thompson's character was extremely well played.
0: I thought she did an absolutely brilliant mm. job. Like that scene where, where she finds out where she opens the, Chris, the Christmas present and it's not the necklace. Like, like her reaction to that feels so real. Like it's not overdone. It's just it's just perfect. of someone who's shocked but doesn't want to make a scene because the kids are there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it it, it it's nice that she ends up being the prime minister's sister. I wasn't I wasn't expecting that yeah. twist.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I didn't understand exactly was what was her relationship to Liam
1: Neeson. Were they just old friends? I think they were just, just friends. friends yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think they were friends. I uh, see. I thought I thought he would end up with her.
0: Oh, okay. Because I uh, thought initially that, he, that she was his sister, but then it turned out no, she was Tone's sister.
1: <laughs> yeah, because then then you, you know if 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 Liam Neeson is the brother <laughs> in the family, you know you kind of you expect yeah, big things yeah. from from Liam Neeson <laughs> as well. You, yeah, you would have like Liam Neeson as the JFK and Tony uh, Hugh Grant as the RF. <laughs> like... <laughs> so yeah, he, he can't he can't be her brother. Can I make a really pretentious comment about about love action? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm a big fan of the director Robert Altman, and it's a very Altman-esque film because he, he does the thing with like multiple storylines uh, and they all intersect in films like Nashville and um, Gosford Park and uh, Shortcuts I think and I, I was very pleased, I, I, I had this idea and then I scrolled down on the Wikipedia page and it's like uh, R- Richard Curtis said he wanted to, to do kind of a Robert Altman-esque film but his films, since they're, like, from the 70s, that they all have, like, depressing endings, and like, everyone's cynical, and like, people die and they're all angry at each other, whereas, you know, Love Actually, ultimately it's kind of a feel-good Christmas Christmas staple.
0: Yeah, another thing I wanted to mention was, um, what, what were your thoughts on the scene where Blair... Rebels against the American president Do you think that was just total British wish Fulfillment like they, they all The people wanted wanted to believe that Blair Wanted to do this or what's your thoughts On that do you think there's a political like Something political behind that or do you think it was just for the movie
1: Hmm I, I think there probably Is something to it I was Interested how like uh, The president is a combination of Clinton and Bush Cause, like He looks like Bush but he acts like Clinton Mm-hmm. Uh but the the actual specifics of it are so kind of vague
0: but the symbolism I, I think the symbolism is at the time blair was facing a lot of criticism especially in 2003 for goodness sake as being basically an american an american lapdog yeah and i think if you want to go meta on this that curtis maybe curtis what curtis is trying to do there is to show that actually no blair wants to give the the finger to bush that moron that american moron but obviously, for political reasons, he can't. But we can show it on screen, and it will tell people, "Oh, yeah, that's he actually wants to do that." That's really what's going on behind the scenes. But obviously, he can't be in public. It's like on a subconscious level, it's like he needs to show to the public, "No, Blair is not. It's not actually
1: Bush's laptop." Yeah. Okay. So it's it's not it's not like a critique of Blair. It's actually it's it's trying to it's cover for him, of... basically. So, so actually,
0: Blair does want to stick it to those stupid Americans, um, but obviously, that can't happen for. You know, uh, diplomatic reasons. Yeah, oh no, that that's interesting. Blair's actually a
1: British patriot.
0: Blair actually he's Britain. Not those 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 stupid dumb Yanks.
1: Yes. I, I, I'm just reminded of, like, the the Simpsons episode where they go to London for the first time as a family, and Tony Blair, like, comes in, flies in on a jetpack at the airport and, like, personally greets every <laughs> every family of tourists that comes into Britain, uh, kind, kind of sh- showing the, the, the cool Britannia thing. But, yeah, no, that is interesting, because, like, I was struck by, in the very... The opening and closing scenes are kind of the Heathrow, Heathrow arrivals scenes, right? Uh, they mention 9 in, like, the very first minute of the film. And I was like, wow, okay, two- okay, it's 2003, sure. But, like, it felt so odd that they mentioned it, like, in the first minute of Love Actually... When they're talking about like the phone calls to the families and how love wi- love wins in the end, uh, but it, it was a very 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 neoliberal sentiment that like Heathrow Airport arrivals is actually like the the most love filled <laughs> romantic place in the universe, and if only people were allowed to like move across borders, uh, like <laughs> you know airports. Airports are like the most sterile, hostile environments you can imagine, but uh, R- Richard Curtis and and Tony Blair see them as these hubs of uh, kind of intrapersonal relations. You know, at the end when Tony is going round
0: the round the neighbourhood trying to find Natalie, and he's knocking on all these doors, and every, and all these families are like, oh, whoa, Mr. Prime Minister, is that really you? And there's just this sense of awe and respect. <laughs> And when I was watching that, I just thought, imagine if Rishi Sunak knocked at your door and you opened it and it was him. I guarantee there'd be none of, none of that respect, none, none of that reaction. would be like, wait, what? Ma- man-lit Rishi coming and knocking on your door.
1: <laughs> yeah, it would just be people saying, oh, I didn't realise you were this short. <laughs> like...
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Blair really was the last Prime Minister where if he knocked on your door and you opened it, you'd be like, Wow. Maybe David Cameron a little bit, but not really.
1: The people who didn't hate David Cameron for, due to like class resentment reasons, I I think your like average middle class person would have uh would have welcomed in David Cameron as much as they they would have Tony Blair, but uh yeah it has Blair was one of the greats uh and you can't it's undeniable I think J- just on like. Sheer political skill and charisma. And... Also,
0: when they, when they ask him to sing the carols and he he goes for it, I, I, I could just I could feel the politician in him. Like, okay, people people want me to perform. Okay, I, I can't say no, even if it's kids and I'm in the <laughs> middle of doing something. When I'm asked to perform, I
1: I have to. It's just in my nature. Yeah, have, have you seen that clip of him on, on the X Factor? It, it's it's one of those like amazing Blair moments where. Like, Simon Cowell was such a big thing in kind of 2000s British culture, you know, make, making up all these shows. But um, it's Blair, and he people are, like, auditioning for the X Factor at, at some kind of arena or something, and he turns up and, uh, like, shakes people's hands. He's like, are you going to audition today? And he's so casual and, like, totally, totally aces it. You, like... Boris Johnson could probably do it, but few, few other uh, modern politicians w- would be that good at retail politics, and they like ask him if he's auditioning too, and then he's like, oh, my whole life is an audition, and uh, it, it's just kind of an amazing uh, Blair moment of, of his, just how good he was with people, really, and, and voters.
0: No, I haven't seen that. I'll, that sounds amazing. I'll, I'll have to check that out. Um, okay so the last question I suppose is in terms of it being a Christmas movie did it did it love actually get you in the Christmas spirit
1: i I think it did like i I, I like seeing Christmassy London uh that that is always nice uh like some so, yeah some cities don't really fit Christmas like like the 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 classic thing is like los angeles isn't a christmas city because it's you never feel Christmassy in in december due to the weather there but like london is one of the Christmassy cities despite like not having the great christmas markets that like uh you know places like prague or in they, they have in like Strasbourg or or germany and so on so i, I like seeing that and, and, as for like the actual spirit of Christmas, not so much. It, it was mainly mainly the the storyline with like the the brother and uh, La- Laura Liddy like caring for him, uh, but the idea of like Christmas as a uniquely kind of romantic holiday, like there's something to it. It was a bit overplayed. I f- yeah, I think I
0: think you're onto something. I think for me, it was the fact that. It's nostalgic. Love actually is nostalgic. It goes back to our childhood. And also, Christmas is also a nostalgic thing because Christmas is most important and you you feel it the most when you're a child. And so, I think the combination of these two things. So, it's set in a period when, you know, in the 2000s when I would have been a kid and I would have been really, really hyped for Christmas. Um, And so, I think those those two things go together. And so, for me, it created like a really, like, uh, it really put me in the Christmas mood. That, that. I guess the, the combination of these two things like I felt like after watching that yes it's Christmas time you know it's December um even though as yeah as you said <laughs> maybe the message of the movie uh, the Christmas message is a bit forced and a lot of the storylines aren't uh, are a bit cruel as you said I still think I don't think that undermined it for me at all to be honest
1: yeah I I, I personally I want like 10% more preachiness in the Christmas movies Or like Home Alone isn't preachy, but I I, I do like I do like a bit of like, oh, you need to be kind to everyone and like be generous and like, you know, Scrooge in a Christmas Carol, that 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 sort of thing. The Seth Rogen Christmas movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What is that called again? The Night Before? Yeah, the night before. Yeah, that that
0: has a preachy message. That inspired me, as we talked about last episode.
1: I don't know why the funniest joke in that for me, and like the the one thing I remember is Seth Rogen wearing like a Hanukkah jumper, and I just found that hilarious for some reason. I was like, "Oh my god, it's a Hanukkah jumper!" Like, wow. <laughs> uh, when when did Christmas jumpers stop becoming a thing? I feel like it's a new kind of fast fashion. Thing in the last twenty twenty yeah, years. Yeah,
0: I'm not sure. I mean, obviously people would wear sweaters in the winter, but but I think but I think there's also there's the Christmas sweater and then there's the ugly Christmas sweater. I think these are two two product categories. Mm. So I remember, like in the mid mid 2010s, maybe 2013 14, 15, something like that. Like ugly Christmas sweaters became this thing, and I think there was probably some some guy on Shark Tank pitched it, and that's that's what started some some something like that. You know, one of these one of these these type of deals. <laughs> And suddenly everyone was into ugly Christmas sweaters. And yeah.
1: I think they're probably still around. I love how you say Shark Tank and not, not Dragon's Den. <laughs> no, but I think it was. Think, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: was it literally Shark Tank? Yeah.
0: Also, dra- I don't know. I don't know about you, but I find Shark Tank is really encouraging. I watch Shark Tank and it's like, it really like highlights the entrepreneurial spirit and is great. And then I watch freaking Dragon's Den and it just like completely really crushes my soul. It's so depressing. It makes me think I'll ne- never be able to start a business... I think that's the difference of British and American mentalities.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, like yeah, cuz the Americans are so entrepreneurial and they they like they love the businessmen, but uh the, the Brits are, are much more skeptical. But you have the opposite with like Kitchen Nightmares, where the British Kitchen Nightmares is like Gordon Brown like fixing their mistakes and trying to help. Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Would be a great show if Gordon Brown. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was known for like throwing printers in number ten, wasn't he? Like for throwing phones at his secretary. Uh, so, so he, he could play the Gordon Ramsay role. But uh, yeah, in 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 the American version, Gordon Ramsay is like super mean and just it has all that that overpowering like dramatic music, and he's like, this is the the worst thing I've ever eaten. And it, it just looks like a normal meal that you would have.
0: Yeah, um, on, on that, I was thinking the other day about why why are why are there so many British celebrity chefs? And basically, I think the answer is that Brits basically couldn't cook until like the 90s. And that's why they needed all these celebrity chefs to teach people how to cook. And that's why we have Gordon Ramsay and Marco Pierre White and Nigella and Ainsley Harriet and all these people is basically because nobody could cook and so they needed someone to teach them. What do you think about that?
1: I think there's something to it, but I think it's it's there are loads of celebrity chefs in other countries. You just don't don't know them.
0: But but yeah but but but, but only recently. I don't Ooh. think there was I don't think celebrity chef culture was a thing in in two thousand in, in other countries. It wasn't a big thing. There was uh, what, what what's that French guy, uh Jacques Jacques Peak, Jack something? Jacques Pepin. Pepin, yeah. It was him. Um
1: Julia Child.
0: Yeah. But in terms of like the celebrity chef I as mean, like the rock star celebrity chef, the Mark and yeah, yeah. White, cool, <laughs> you know, that picture of him smoking, the Gordon Brown the guard and now I'm doing it. The Gordon Ramsay. I think that I think that's very much a British thing. Before it was like a cooking show on TV. Like you'd watch the cooking show. But that I think like the rock star celebrity chef is is, is, is definitely like a nineties British thing that took that other countries about 10 years to catch up. On.
1: There was um there was a british chef called Floyd, I think Keith Floyd. Uh, his his uh, I think in the 80s and his whole thing was basically he was always drunk and he was always he was always like nursing a glass of red wine whenever he was cooking anything and like sipping it in, 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 in like the french riviera or whatever. And in the 80s this was this was very glamorous I think for for, for, for the people watching who used to, you know, all their, all their tinned food and and <laughs> the, the depressing meals that the Americans like to make fun of us for eating.
0: Um, yeah, there's one point I still have. I want, my last note was that the very ending scene where, where it's the nativity play, all, all the people in the audience are using these old, like, Cameras. These are one-use cameras where you just you go through the thirty pictures or however however many you have, and then you take it to the developers, and they that's that's the end of the camera. Do
1: you remember those? Yeah, the Kodak kind of.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought about these in like ten years, and I remember they were such like a big thing back then. Like if I went on on holiday somewhere, like my mom would give me one of these cameras and be like, "You've only got thirty pictures, so use it wisely." Oh wow, that that is a nice memory. And that's. Li- yeah, yeah, that's like a whole industry that that doesn't exist anymore.
1: Yeah, well, I like the the digital video cameras that that were in the film, because those like they're kind of terrible, but now once you once you look back at them, like the, that picture quality has has some sort of weird charm, it, and it, it's probably just nostalgia, but the way it like glows in that unnatural way is is kind of amazing and uh you, you occasionally see like um some directors and filmmakers like david lynch does it occasionally where like you, you know the big film snob thing is to to shoot on real film and not digital but they 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 occasionally shoot on digital to get that like eerie weird effect that you sometimes you, you sometimes get from those cameras uh what's your don't give me a full tier list of christmas dinner but give me like your top and your bottom from like the the trimmings and and the turkey and, and that sort of stuff um i think turkey's pretty
0: dry so i think i think turkey's overrated um on a tangent i'm oh, one I, of those people yeah i'm one of those people i think turkey's overrated i don't know why in in places like germany the like turkey like, as chicken. They have turkey. Turkey's like a normal poultry in Germany. I don't know why. I think it's dry, and that's why they need all this this sauce and everything for it. Um, I'm a mince pie respecter. I know that, that some people don't like mince pies, but I'm a mince pie respecter. Um, for our non-British listeners, if there are any, mince pies are like fruit. like These small fruit pies or like sweet and sour fruit pies. So it's like r- raisins and sultanas and stuff like that. Uh, in a in a small pie, it's not actually minced meat. Um, my top tier. I mean, normally we have like roast lamb for Christmas, so. Okay. Normally, no Yeah, I think roast lamb is 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 S tier for uh, it's it's the best roast. Lamb is the best roast. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> uh, sorry, roast beef fanboys out there, but roast lamb is the best roast. So I'm going with that.
1: I I did definitely have you down as not not lamb but i I thought you would be one of those like roast goose snobs who's like oh actually roast ro- roast goose and duck were like much more popular before before Charles Dickens wrote a Christmas carol uh, <laughs> that those, those were the the go-to roasts I'm mm, oh I'm a I'm a parsnip fan Ooh. i I think that that's the that's the single best vegetable roast parsnips my my favorite part of of the entire meal they're good on their own they're good with gravy they're good as leftovers big big parsnip parsnip respect and i hate the brown meat on the turkey you'll never convince me to eat that oh it's meant to be less dry and more flavorful no i like the breast with doused in gravy you know it's not dry, because you're not meant to eat it on its own. That's my that's my turkey hot take. <laughs> right, and I think with that, that's all. That's the Grey Album Christmas Special for 2023. And with that
0: Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas everyone. everyone!
1: Good King Windsor